the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The views and opinions expressed by Rob Black and his guests are not necessarily those of the Wall Street Business Network, this station, its management, owners, or advertisers, and should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making any investment or financial planning decision. Insightful. Informative. Irreverent. We're ready. The Wall Street Business Network presents Rob Black and Your Money, your source for breaking news, market updates, and successful investment strategies for the 21st century. Sounds like a great program. Getting you to retirement in today's market. So let's get on with the show. Tennis, family finances, insurance, the economy, technology, media, and entertainment. Rob is talking about it with you at 800 516 1220. So call in, we'll chat and uh, have some fun. Now, to start your day with the latest news and market commentary, here's Rob Black on the Wall Street Business Network. Welcome in, Rob Black and your money. I'm Rob Black talking all things financial. Recently, the markets have hit record highs, and that tends to make people a little crazy. They tend to sometimes get greedy, they tend to sometimes get fearful. I myself, I don't care. Um, if I were to retire today, I'd be retired at a record high but that's not where i'm at if i had my goal financially met for where how much money i want to make i'd start diversifying i've hit my goal if i've underperformed the stock markets i would always look at chances to rebalance my portfolio and not really worry about record highs or lows depending on your time frame uh, for the instance if you're worried about the international markets. Maybe you go more small cap markets in the United States that don't have exposure. If you're worried about the strong dollar, maybe you cut back a little bit on the S&P 500 companies that do get a lot of their business from overseas markets. Um, Walmart gets a ton of business from overseas markets, so Walmart is going to be exposed to the stronger dollar. Uh, it's worthy of note. Now again, we're not going to cry for Walmart. Not gonna, not gonna do it. Uh, but we could certainly acknowledge it. The mansion prominently featured in the 1983 film Scarface. Say hello to my little friend. But, um, went on the market last year for 35 million dollars. You remember the house is gorgeous. Now it's on sale for 17.8 million dollars. I'd say the realtor got the the wrong price on that one, and the owner has to be pissed. Last year, like, we're going to sell it for $35 million. We're going to sell it for $17 million. Again, it's a good problem to have. The problems of millionaires. Uh, pretty gorgeous, though. Anyway, um, let's talk Tony Mendez, Bay Area Loan Source. How are you, Tony? I'm doing well. I always assume the wrong, wrong answer here. How's real estate doing? How are loans doing? What's the wrong answer? I, oh, no, I don't know I, what you mean see, by that. I'm going to assume that it's drying up, that anyone who's wanted to buy is bought, anyone who's wanted to refi is refied, or the people who want to buy don't exist because they're too fearful of high prices. Um, I could easily say that. 
Is it the land of gold and honey? Well, I mean, you brought up a good point. Rates were super low for a long period of time, and everybody who – and equities were rising. So it gave the opportunity for many, 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 many people to refinance into these super low rates. So why would they ever refinance again, and why would they sell when – uh, the cost of money is rising and home prices are rising. Why not just stay where you are and do some renovations and make the best of what you have? Uh, and then you have the people who are looking to buy. Yeah, you ha- you're competing against cash offers. For, you know, In the United States, there's still some markets, Rob, where cash, off- cash purchases are over 50%. In the Bay Area, it's about 25%. Our historical average here is about 14%. So uh, it's extremely difficult to compete for a house. Yes. So you're looking at some realities here that we haven't seen for several years, and it's starting to catch up with a lot of people. People are getting frustrated with uh, the amount of down payments they have to put into a house, how much more they have to go over asking price and appraised value. Remember, over appraised value means that your down payment now represents less of a percentage. So if you're working with 20%, now that might become 15% or 10% because you still have to pay the seller that extra money. So this is frustrating a lot of people. And then, you know, we, we're starting to hear rates are going up. Right now, rates are 50, at the highest they've been in 2015, and they're dipping over the last couple of days, but we're still seeing that kind of fluctuation trending upward. So it, it depends on what side of the, the, the transaction, I guess, you're on. If you're lucky enough to find a property and you're on the buyer side, great. If you're a seller, it's a great market for you to sell. Uh, it's where are you going to move? I think that that's a, a, the only problem that I see sellers having is where are we going to move? We're becoming a buyer now, and we have to deal with the down payment and the contingencies that we have a house that we have to sell to use that equity to buy the new house. Where do we go in between if we go in between at all? So, yeah, that, I think you, you, you hit it right on the nose, Rob. It's, it's a tight market. Um, the Bay Area is unique. Uh, the rest of the United States is, is actually quite content where they are as far as the amount of inventory they have, uh, good rates. The builders are, are pretty happy. Applications for new homes are going up. So we're in a different kind of environment that uh, doesn't really lend itself to national uh, trends. Where are rates at right now? If you're kind of guessing good couple, good income, 30-year fixed. 30-year fixed. Freddie Mac has the 30-year fixed at 3.85% right now. It's not bad. Not bad at all. Um, I'd expect that to maybe bip up a little bit uh, after you know the, the bond is – the 10-year yield has gone – crazy over the last couple of weeks, a massive sell-off in world markets. But the, um, you know, a jumbo loan is, you know, right around 4%, I'd say. So just cheap money all around still. You have to remember that our historical average for a 30-year fix is 6.3%. And for those who haven't really started looking at real estate, uh, you know, over the last six years, maybe, maybe five years, it might sound a little crazy that our rates do average 6.3%. So we're still well below where we were. That's 24% less, Rob, in a payment compared to what it was in 2007. So that's another reason why I think home price can still go up a little bit, maybe 5-10% over the next tw- you know 12 to 24 months. And I think that's still driving people into home prices. What I worry is that the, the sellers who are saying, you know what, there's not a lot of inventory. I have a great house. It's fixed up. Great neighborhood. I'm, I'm going to take advantage of this. And they're going to st- end up doing almost like a blind offer. And or blind sale, and they're going to get a well over asking price. You don't, as a buyer, you don't know what you're you're putting in, and you don't know who's competing against you. And there's going to be someone out there that's going to buy this house for an egregious amount over the appraised value and maybe over asking price, and and they may be buying into that future appreciation, which worries me a little bit. So you may be buying 
5, 10, 15% of appreciation that you won't get for many, many, many years to come. So if you're buying a house today, uh, be certain that you're not flipping that because uh, and, and you're going to live in that for a long period of time because I, th I think that we may not be seeing those type of returns for, uh, you know, at the pace we're at right now. Yeah, I, I would always caution with real estate, never assume short-term anything um, because we're one earthquake away from having a lot of inventory on the market. So. Yeah, but at the same time, if you are looking to buy a house, you have the money, you can afford it, you want that, those write-offs, which, by the way, are fantastic. Uh, and you want to keep the house for one or two years, and that's just your style. That's what you do. You buy houses and then you know, move again and buy another house. I don't think we're, you're, you're risking very much at all by getting into this market here in the Bay Area. I, even in a disastrous economic situation, um, the kind of people who are buying and, have, and, like you said, people who have refinanced and people who have bought recently in the last six, seven years are under new guidelines People, the, 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 the people who are actually qualified, there's no teaser rates, there's no liar loans, there's no negam loans. These people actually qualify for this property with their income and credit. So the risk of foreclosures and short sales that can hurt communities and, and home values isn't there as, as much as it was over, you know, between 2006 and 2010. So th th that risk is gone. So I feel much better for somebody paying over asking price today than it was back in 2007. I think everyone needs to be careful, though, even though you say that you're cautious on the risk levels. I'm cautious on income levels. Uh, income levels have not been growing in the Bay Area as fast as real estate prices has, and that kind of gets disconnected. And then I told you my friend last year, you know, a couple of years ago, she bought a townhome. She stretched to do it. She stopped funding her 401k. Stock market went up 100% during that period of time. Um, she got it. But she's also one job layoff from losing it. You can find me online at robblack.com. It's robblack.com. Twitter, Rob Black Show. YouTube, Rob Black Show. You can find Tony by email, Tony at BayAreaLoanSource.com. He's the guy who does all my loans. Friend of the show, BayAreaLoanSource.com. Now I wish I never met her. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial money, investing, and more. Anything you want to talk about, we could talk about. Joining me now, pick up the phone call, Sam in Utah. Sam, how are you? Hey, Rob. I'm doing well. How's it going with you? Doing good. Happy Friday. Happy Friday to you, too. It's going to be a good day. Fridays typically are. What's up? So, this is kind of a two-part question. I'm a millennial myself, so that's kind of preface of where it's coming from. Sprout, or, uh, Whole Foods, they just announced that they, on their earnings call, they announced their release, or coming out with a discounted store chain. They didn't give much details on it, but it's going to be separate from Whole Foods. And I want to know what's your opinion on that, and then this is kind of a two-part question, and how does that affect Sprouts Farmers Market, ticker symbol SFM? Does that validate them as a 
um, transforming entity, like they're pushing Whole Foods down, or does this kind of push them out of the market? Yeah, first and foremost, I want to kind of throw out that I'm not a big fan of grocery stores as far as investments go, but thanks for the call. Um, both Sprouts, Farmer's Market, SFM, and Whole Foods are expensive. Um, neither one of them are in any way, shape, or form cheap as far as valuations go. But like you said, the co-CEOs of Whole Foods, John Mackey and Walter Robb, announced the company's plan to start a chain under a separate banner that's going to be geared towards millennials, both in product selection and value prices. I don't know if you can do organics with a lot of value. Um, I think maybe they may be misreading the millennial consumer. They believe they can steer them towards a value concept. Within the Whole Foods space, there's a need for a value concept, but it's a different consumer. It's perhaps the Trader Joe's consumer or the consumer fresh and easy uh, people. A discount version of Whole Foods would be a much smaller store and would probably be geared more towards cities, and rents in cities right now are not cheap. Will they cannibalize some of their own business? Probably. They're working on the assumption that there is an unmet need in the market for lower-priced natural foods and that they don't meet this market yet. Uh, their competitors will eventually. So will it ultimately be accretive and positive? It's a smart company. Whole Foods you know, does a nice job of, of getting people into the stores. Um, pretty egregious pricing on some of their stuff. Uh, way egregious. You know, 99-cent bananas when you can get 79-cent bananas at Safeway. Um, I don't know. That, to me, seems kind of egregious. A lot of young people are likely locked out of the existing offerings because of the price. They'll likely put a lot of effort into presenting the launch for a strong focus. We don't have much information on it at this point in time. If you like Sprouts, you're paying a, a premium for it. Um, Sprouts is cute. Sprouts is totally different than Whole Foods. Uh, Trader Joe's is totally different than Whole Foods. Trader Joe's, number one grocery store three years in a row, according to consumers. Um, there's a lot of formats out there right now, and I myself just don't like the margins in the business that much. If I were to bet, <clears throat> I'd bet on Whole Foods because they're bigger. But I think a Sprouts could be acquired, whereas I think a Whole Foods just can get some volume going. I'm not a grocery kind of guy. With that said, uh, the concept is validated, you know, uh, like you said, you're a millennial living in Utah. Um, millennials care what they put in their body. So I'd probably even go as far as to say I'd rather go with Chipotle than a grocery store. Um, but I would only do that if I had money to buy it three times, once now, once in six months, and once in a year from now. Uh, so I can scale into it. And if it moves up, I'm thrilled. And if it moves down, I'm thrilled. Um, Tony Mendez, BayAreaLoanSource.com. Hey, Rob. Yeah. Good. So what do you make of this whole uh, – have you seen the – any renters come to you and say, I got to buy, renting's killing me? Psychologically, renting is, is damaging for people. You're like, oh, the money's going away. But at the same time, your cash flow might be one-third in housing cost of mine, you know, renting versus owning. Having that cash flow is pretty powerful for some people, and they don't acknowledge that because they go, oh, I'm throwing money down the drain. Yeah, and that's definitely a concern as rents go up, uh, keeping that cash flow. I rent a lot of millennials that – or I'm sorry, let me say renters that just aren't saving enough. Okay. Um, and the ones that have, you know, they just have to get out of it, uh, out of an apartment. They they they've been renting for a period of time. They save the money. They're they may be expanding their family, or or they just, you know, they just don't feel right in an apartment. But 
one of the messages that I try to get out to people is just get a really good mortgage versus, I'm sorry, a uh, rent versus buy calculator. Uh, and, you know, when you get down to that net number, that net payment for a house, it's in a lot of cases, it's as close to what you're paying for a, a, a rent. And you get all the other benefits, the tax deductions and the appreciation and the, you know, the fixed cost of money, which I think a lot of people underestimate that in 10 years, if you get a 30-year fix, that, te- that payment stays the same. Um, but your rents can keep going up 4 to 8% a year. Um, they're trying to pass a rent control in San Jose. That's one of the reasons we were talking about that. Uh, you know, it costs $31. I mean, you have to make $31 an hour just to afford anything larger than a one-bedroom place in San Jose. Uh, and that's killing a lot of people uh, with, with that. You know, it's pushing lower incomes and middle incomes out of, the, you know, the, the inner cities uh, and replacing with higher earners. Uh, and, is, you know, the commutes now are, are, are <coughs> longer and, and, you know, and that also pushes up costs for businesses that are local that need to hire people. They're like, oh, I need more money because I'm, my rents are going up. So it's, it's, there's so many factors in, in, in how rents are pushing up home prices in other areas and then it's, it's hurting the, you know, local economy. So it's, you know, I, I just don't want people to, to uh, sacrifice the, their retirement. I mean, it's more and more what we talk about on our show is about how people are sacrificing retirement just to buy a house. So definitely make sure that's a consideration. I'm sure you see that quite often where people have just taken all the money out of their retirement just to buy a house. Yeah. And sometimes it doesn't make sense. And, and, well, you know, we keep talking about it, though. For some people, it works. Even though it doesn't make sense for some people, it works. When it doesn't work, you just lost your retirement. And that's what I fear because... I can tell you about the girl that I knew who was trying for seven years to buy a house, and I just said, get a condo, just pay for it, shut up, stop asking me when I, when I think housing prices are going to go down, just do it. And she did, and worked out for her so far. But there's also the uh, girl that I dated whose dad um, took money out of the house, bought a house, turned it into rental, took money out of the house again, bought a house, put a rental in it, did it one more time, so he eventually had four pieces of total property. And then the downturn hit. He lost a renter. He couldn't afford the mortgages. He lost all four homes. Yep. And her mother had a stroke during that time Oof. and is now basically like a 220-pound woman who has to be physically lifted up and moved around. And her dad has to work till the day he dies. A lot of those kinds of investors are coming back into the market, Rob. Lovely. Or not. Lovely. So we'll talk about this and more. You're listening to me, Rob Black. You can find me online at robblack.com, Twitter, Rob Black Show, YouTube, Rob Black Show. You can find Tony by emailing Tony at bayarealonesource.com. Rob Black, talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. Joining me now, Max Willens, 
ibtimes.com, International Business Times, ibtimes.com. Great website, by the way, Max. How are you? I'm great, Rob. How are you? Good. I'm, uh, I got turned on to IB Times about six weeks ago, and I've been really enjoying the um, the types of articles. They, they kind of talk to me. You know, Anytime you can mix business with Game of Thrones, I'm in. <laughs> We're everything to everybody. There you go. Um, you've written two articles recently that I think are very, very important because Apple's getting ready to come out with Beats Music. The Bay Area is starting to get word of it, what it'll look like, what it might not look like. You wrote an article on Spotify, free tier elimination, going to ignite widespread piracy, so says the pirates. Um, what did you learn while studying up on Spotify and some of the situations surrounding them? So Spotify is in the unenviable position of being the streaming service that more people are aware of, or the on-demand streaming service that more people are aware of than anything else. And so they come in for all of the criticism and all of the um, sort of attacks that are, are levied against uh, streaming music services. They've they've had a good start um, to their uh, uh, launch since they landed in the U.S. They, they currently have about 60 million people using the site uh, or the service worldwide every every month they have about 15 million paying subscribers which is not chump change and this this year they uh their revenues grew to the point that they were a billion dollar business but they're not profitable and the label the record labels that they partner with and who provide them with all the music that forms the foundation of their service feel like the free tier that Spotify has is not making a, the label's enough money, and B, is not doing a good enough job of converting its non-paid users into paying users. Um, and on the money part, or the uh, revenue side, the, you can certainly see the label's point. Um, you know, of the billion-plus dollars that Spotify brought in as revenue last year, less than 10% of that money came from advertising. The remaining 90-plus percent came from subscriptions. And so Spotify is under a tremendous amount of pressure, um, not just from the labels, but also from Apple, which, as you pointed out, is launching a streaming service. They're reportedly uh, leaning on the labels to get tougher with Spotify to get rid of the uh, ad-supported tier of their service, because Apple's service reportedly will not offer a free tier, and and many other on-demand streaming services don't offer a free tier either. Where does Pandora fall in all this? Because I want to say three or four years ago, Pandora was the talk of the town and now no one talks about them at all. They've only talked about Spotify and Apple and a couple others on occasion. Pandora seems to have been dropped. Well, it's funny. I mean, Pandora is sort of dealing with a lot of the problems that it's been dealing with for a very long time. I mean, it's growing very well. It's, it continues to grow, maybe not quite at the speed that, that some analysts would like, but it's, it's still not turning a profit either. And they, they're sort of experiencing a much more extreme version of the problem that that Spotify is. I mean, Spotify, of the 60 million users that Spotify uh, attracts every month, 15 million of them are paying a, f- a monthly subscription fee. Um, and, you know, in the digital space, if you've got a, a product where a quarter of your users are paying for it, that's that's not really that bad. That's That's a pretty decent batting average. On the Pandora side, less than 5% of the 80 million users that it has are paying a monthly subscription fee. And so they're basically entirely dependent on advertising revenue. And even though 
they've made a ton of improvements to the ad offering, and they're they're putting a lot of energy into becoming more visible and more of a powerhouse and more of a player in local markets where they're active. They it's still very much uh, uncertain that that advertising can can turn Pandora into a a, a very very a profitable company or even a profitable company period is there any value in pandora maybe someone like an apple would say this is a good way to get us going or have they just messed it up by going so advertising oriented well the thing that's funny is that you you're starting to see companies observe what pandora does well and they're just sort of incorporating the things that pandora is good at into their own offerings so um this this week actually, Ardio, which is a a Spotify-like service that was founded by two of the people that built Skype, they launched something called Ardio Select, which is sort of a hybrid of Pandora and Spotify together. Where for four dollars a month, what you get is unlimited uh, radio-like services where you can listen to music based on genre, based on particular artists, maybe a playlist that was curated by a DJ or by your favorite band. And then on top of that, you have this opportunity to save up to 25 songs a day onto your mobile device, and you can change that those 25 songs every single day. So it's, you know, it's not unlimited access to a 35 million song catalog, but it's pretty close. And uh, I spoke with RDO's CEO, Anthony Bay, about this when I was writing a story about it, and he said that uh, they're really looking to capitalize on what Pandora does well because they're going to be launching RDO Select in a number of markets where, where Pandora is not visible, so South Africa and uh, the United Kingdom and um, Ireland. And so that's that's going to – oh, in Canada, and that's going to make them – uh, it, in a sense, it sort of further imperils, imperils Pandora because a lot of people are just sort of watching and, and cherry-picking the best parts and the most appealing parts of their experience and just folding them into their own services. I read your article on RDO, Marion Radio and the on-demand music, and I found it interesting the price point that they're focusing in on is three ninety nine. Yes. Because that's a lot better than nine ninety nine. It makes a lot of sense to lots of people, right? And it was very deliberate and you th because you think about a lot of research that's been done in the music space finds that for the last number of years, and this really even goes back to when we were all buying CDs as opposed to you know paying subscription fees, p the average American consumer would spend between $50 and $60 a year on music. And 50 and $60 a year, you take that on one hand, and then on the other hand, you've got $10 a month for Spotify or for Beats or for RDO Unlimited even. And there's a pretty wide gap between those two numbers. By settling in at $4 a month, you're creating a price point that's going to make a lot more sense to a lot more people. In the end, who do you think wins? Will there be a winner-take-all, or will these services kind of fold into the bigger players like Apple and Google, um, this is, Facebook? This is, I think, this is definitely the, the $64,000 question, whether there can be, whether there's enough oxygen in this space for lots of people. I mean, if you look at, at video, for example, subscription video, Netflix is so enormous and doing such a, a great job of, positioning itself as sort of the the leader and the only player in this space. And you have to wonder whether a similar thing is going to happen in music. I mean, Apple 
is certainly well positioned to potentially do it. You know, they have something like 500 million iTunes customers, and depending on how they want to set this up when they when they roll their music service out, they could have their service on millions or maybe even tens or hundreds of millions of of phones with a couple of you know button pushes and it's entirely possible that you know they're going to just wipe everybody out and and become the the de facto leader in this space but you know RDO Select is very different from what we're hearing so far about Apple's offering and you know it's entirely possible that Spotify could come out with they're launching a video service in the coming weeks reportedly and it's very possible that you know as these services continue to sort of evolve and grow and uh tweak the, their offerings there might be space for for more than a couple of different companies in this space how about the moves by people like Taylor Smith, uh, Taylor Swift, where she pulls her catalog from Spotify? I think that that was something that you're going to see fewer and fewer artists start to do, uh, or fewer and fewer artists that can really even afford to do that. I mean, Taylor Swift still sells so much music that she has the the luxury of being able to take an entire revenue stream and just sort of look at it and say, eh, no, I'm not interested. I can, you know, make more money by going on tour or I can just lean back and, and luxuriate in the fact that my albums will go platinum or go very close to that. If you're a, a mid-sized band, the odds that you're going to turn your nose up at a revenue stream, even if it's not quite as big as you would like it to be, is are, I think, pretty low. And moving forward, as more and more people continue to adopt these services and as more and more artists start to get sophisticated about how valuable income from these services is, I think you're going to start to see more and more artists embrace the opportunity to make money on these services, even though at the moment it may not seem like an amount that they feel very excited about. I think you have one of the coolest jobs. You're a great writer. I appreciate you joining us today. It's Max Willens with IB Times. You can find him at ibtimes.com. If anyone wants the articles that he's recently written me, you can email me directly, and I'll send you the links to rob at robblack.com. It's rob at robblack.com. Again, IB Times. If you check out the webpage, it's kind of cool. It has the type of articles I like to read for leisure. I'm not going to say it's a rolling stone, but it's it's pretty good. Take a break here. Be right back. Eight hundred five one six twelve twenty to get your calls on the air. 
anything you want to talk about, we can talk about. In the world of real estate, you look, some of the things you look at are existing home sales, new home sales. And what's really fascinating is new home sales stocks, uh, home builder stocks, they historically un- underperform in the summer months because we'll talk and go, hey, Tony, springtime, why don't you go take a look at a house? And, like springtime's the time to be looking for a house. School's ending, you get the summer to move in, you get settled down, and you sign up for the new school paperwork. Um, so the home builders do really, really well in January, February, March. As everyone's talking about, like, hey, this spring, do you think it's going to be a good selling season, bad selling season? And then the professionals sell them because all the good news is already ended to it. And the bad news starts to hit. Yeah, we're selling a couple fewer houses. and um, But it's the home builders that, that move. And it's it's almost, a, I'm not going to say a guaranteed trade because that's very dangerous of me to say. But um, it is a trend. Homes are selling right now at a faster clip this spring, but something's still not quite right in housing. Thanks to the epic real estate crash of the last decade, market watchers and reporters now have a whole cottage industry of data providers to track every move in home sales and mortgage financing. Mortgage rates are rising up pretty significantly in the past two weeks from 3.6% for a 30-year fix to just over 4%. Um, and that changes that changes how much you can afford. When I bought my first home, it was... It was tight some months. You know, I was more of a paycheck-to-paycheck kind of guy then. Um, and the, that little rate difference. Like, if I had an arm that was tinkering up a little bit, because I had an arm at one point in time, um, and that scares the hell out of me. So, Yeah, it, definitely there's some sacrifices that you have to make when looking at rising interest rates. I think we might see more arms come into uh, – in a play here in the Bay Area, it's dropped considerably as far as the usage on new homes uh, down to, I think, below 4%. It was as high as 40 50% back in 2007. I think even higher, maybe 60%. So a lot of people were using arms. And a lot, you know, some of those were NEGAM loans and, and you know, 10-year arms with interest only. Uh, and it really was enticing because that payment allowed you to, uh, you know, say, oh, you know what, that interest rate for a 30-year fix is 6%, but I can do this interest only at, Five percent, and that really comes out to like four percent. So, but right now rates are four percent. So you really are looking at a nice discount on the rate. But as they tick up, yes, you, you start looking at uh, the home prices are rising, and then interest rates are rising, and then I have to go over asking price. It's a little scary for uh, someone who is living paycheck to paycheck. Now something seems kind of fishy out there because on one level things look great, but the FHA insured loans, a favorite amongst first-time buyers due to their low minimum down payments saw weak volume in the first quarter. Now, it was still winter during the first quarter, but comparisons to last year um, are are weak. Realty Track also recorded the highest volume of non-owner occupant buyers, which are largely investors, in the first quarter since 2011. And a lot of that investing is now using mortgage, uh, mortgages instead of cash. And that's a fishy kind of sign because it's showing you a little bit more speculation. Interesting stuff. Let's go to Keith. Maybe in Gilroy. Yeah. Hello. Yeah, how are you, Keith? Hey. Hey, I was calling. Uh, I I listened to your show quite a bit, and uh, I was calling. You guys mainly talk about the Bay Area, and I'm actually on my way right now to look at an investment or a few investment properties in Sacramento, just because the Bay Area is a little bit too expensive, and I'm able to refinance on my existing home, and I have one already in Sacramento. But what do you guys think about the outlying areas other than the Bay Area? Um, 
first and foremost, how's your property doing in Sacramento that you have? I'm sorry? How's the first property you have in Sacramento doing? Um, so Cameron Park area, it's over, over east of Sacramento, and I'm on my way, I guess, into the heart of Sacramento today. Um, but I've been able to refinance my house in, in Gilroy twice because of the market moving up so fast and been able to cash out on that. And today I'm hoping to go cash on something, but um, I guess I'm just, it, 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 it's a little bit of a, of a crazy time because I guess you don't know what the market will do. And for me, it's a bit of a stretch. So I guess I'm just kind of asking what you think about outlying areas. You might remember the late 1990s when the stock market was going up, you know, 80% a year, 30% a year, 50% a year. And it was kind of a it was kind of a crazy time. It was kind of stretched, and then from 2000 to 2002, it got demolished, and it just now yeah. got back to those levels. You know, eight years after the fact, or good gosh, uh, 12 years after the fact, roughly. Um, so just know that you're stretched, and that things could go bad. I like Sacramento. If you're buying in Sacramento in a highly desirable area, I hate Sacramento. I hate Sacramento. If you're buying a condo. That's ten miles out of of Sacramento because there's nothing but land up there. And yeah. It's, okay. So that's my opinion, Tony. Um, I, I guess it would come down to why you're buying the property. Are you looking for the the, the rate of return on your investment? Are you looking for uh, you know five year term on that? To... Um, I'm a long term investor. Um, I guess I'm just looking for value to rise and taking in the income. And I don't. I guess I don't care that I that I bring in a a um, a profit every year. I just assume that's going to happen over time. Yeah. So it, it, there's nothing wrong with getting a profit. You will pay taxes uh, if you buy this property in cash. You you'll miss out on the, some of the uh, tax benefits of having a loan. Now you can always buy the property in cash and then replenish your cash using something called delayed financing. That's you know Rob was just talking about how more people are, or investors are buying properties with loans. Uh, but if you are fortunate enough to have the ability to take the money out of your house. And, and stay stay within the limits of your primary residence schedule A uh, in, um, interest deductions, and you know stay within the guidelines of the IRS. You know there could be some serious benefits that you could have by having that. Number one, the lower rate on your primary residence as as opposed to an investment rate, and then also get those tax benefits. So uh, you're doing yeah. what a lot of people that investors have been doing in the in the Bay Area for many many years. Uh, but if you go back to 2007 uh, and some of the years before that, a lot of people were taking cash out of the Bay Area and moving it into some of the properties in places like, uh, you know, let's say Stockton and and, and um, Manteca and, and other places around the Bay. I'm sorry, the, the uh, Northern California that that got really, you know, hurt by the you know the, the crisis. Now, where I think that you're smarter by going to Sacramento is I like the state capital. There's always going to be, a, you know, an abundance of jobs there, but I, I, uh-huh. I do like staying closer to the city. I'd rather spend a little bit more money for a quality home, and maybe even consider getting a small loan on it to stay closer to the inner city, for just, for, just in case, you know, we have some problem with, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, there could be a, a furlough or, uh, you know, a, a company pulls out of the city, you know, for their, their, for, you know, economic reasons. There could be many reasons. I, I'd stay closer to this inner city. Thanks for the call. One thing, one thing that he said that does concern me a little bit, he says, I really can't afford the peninsula. And that's typically where you start to get into trouble. Um, I could afford 80 houses. I could probably, honestly, with my money, I could probably get 20 houses in Sacramento. But I'd rather get one 
in Santa Barbara. Um, I don't have to have these turn in. I don't have to be a real estate mogul. Yeah, I think that's what I was trying to get to is that find that quality area. There's always going to be a quality area in yep. any city. And I, I think the closer you get to that quality city, you're going to have the quality returns. Um, why take money out of your primary residence, risk you know, losing everything, I mean, theoretically you could, just to buy an average home. Um, make your, you know, it's, it's just like buying a stock. You're not going after the, you know, the weaker stocks. You go after the strong stocks. So they have good dividends. They have stronger cash flows and cash, cash on, on hand. Uh, that's the same thing with an investment property. I could, I'd consider getting a little bit of a loan, though, to get into a better neighborhood. And, and rates are, are pretty cheap right now. And you know, the nice thing about investment properties is you don't have to I'm assu- for the record, I'm For the record, I'm assuming he's getting loans. No, he said he bought it. He's t- trying to buy it in cash is what he said. I thought he said he, some years he won't be cash flow positive. No, he's trying to he's trying to buy the property in cash. Okay, but I thought he said so. Maybe we're getting some mixed messages. He said some years I won't make money. Maybe he was just talking about appreciation, or was he talking about cash flow? I, I believe well appreciation you don't realize until you sell the property, so that doesn't make any sense. So it has to be makes cash sense. flow. Oh no, it makes sense. People look at their house and, you know, woohoo, my million-dollar house is now worth $1.1 I would 1. never million. look at an investment property as a flip, Okay. personally. I, I, I think that's the wrong way to look at an investment property. It's, it's long-term hold for some, you know. That you, you haven't could, looked at your property that you have back in Virginia. You haven't looked it up on Zillow and go, woohoo. No. <laughs> you haven't done that no, once? I, I haven't gone woohoo because it's been going down. Okay. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but I, I do enjoy the fact that it's almost paid off. Yeah. And I've been enjoying some tax benefits for, uh, for a long period of time. And ultimately, it's going to be something that I could use to maybe pay for long-term care or or an investment or, or my IRA contributions every year. And this is the type of things that I'm looking for that is investment that somebody else is paying off. So I would leverage it as much as possible and stay within the cash flow area and, and, and possibly even keep going. But it depends on how old you are and how what your risk levels are. So you have to really establish those things first before you become that guy I'm taking money out of the house to purchase property. And I'll throw this out one more time. I'm glad he said Sacramento and not Tracy or Stockton. There was periods of times in, two, in the 2000s where people were like, I can't afford the Bay Area, so I'm going to go Stockton. And that doesn't turn out well for you. Uh, I'm not saying Stockton is the crack capital of the world. <laughs> You're I'm, not? I'm not. Um, maybe it's the crystal meth capital of the world, but it's not the crack capital of the world. Um, have you ever looked? I won't even talk about that. Um, <laughs> But be, when you say careful. when you say out loud Stockton and, and Tracy, you're basically saying I can't really afford this. And I hope his job and his cash flow is good enough to ride through the bad times, if there are bad times. I'm Rob Black talking all things financial. You can find me online at robblack.com. Email Tony, Tony at BayAreaLoanSource.com. Tony Mendez is sitting in with me today. We're talking about money and creating wealth. He was talking about real estate investments. He can help get loans done. He's gotten numerous loans done for me. He's actually pretty good with me. Um, I'm one of those people, I don't like the process. I don't like to see the sausage made. I don't want to hear about it. I want to know about it. If I need to run to the bank to get a receipt, he sends me that little thing, go get this. 
and it's kind of keeps it out of I'm like, I don't want to know why. Just get the loan done. I understand. Ch- the, changing my motto. What's that? Do I make your sausage? It's from I get loans done. Yeah. Which is I know. quite possibly the worst tagline ever. So. Uh, sausage. This is, this is your brain on a mortgage. Um, during the break, you asked me an interesting question. Do I ever get hate email? I do. And um, I gave two examples. There's a third one. There's this guy whose name is Al Shaw, and he signs his emails Al Shaw 666. So this tells you that he's not quite all there. Um, and he will constantly think the market's going to zero. That the Fed, you can't print this kind of money and not have ramifications. And his emails are all like in bold and stuff. Like, ha, 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 we're going to zero. You're going to lose all your money. You're going to lose everyone's money. Ha, ha, ha. Like, it's not quite... Little mayday, mayday. Danger, Will Robinson. Then I get another type of email from people who sell insurance annuities. And they're like, their email has a lisp in it. Like, you don't even understand how hard I work to try to get my clients into these products. And with them, they just don't understand. Typically, when I see that, it's from someone who works like at an Ameriprise. Where... Uh, I'll be careful about the company I say. Maybe there's some startup, not startup. There's some brokerage firms and some insurance companies that it's really easy to get a job at. Um, basically, you show up and they're like, Tony, go sell this annuity to 10 people. Or Tony, go sell this mutual fund to 10 people. And for instance, like the American funds. Now, you sell it to your brother. You get him to put $100,000 in. Company gets six thousand dollars. You get three thousand. The company gets three thousand. That's six percent. Who loses there? Your brother, because he just paid six percent for something that you don't have to pay six percent for. So I get emails from those types. Then I'll get emails from those type of advisors who I'll say things like, "I'm always in the market." There's never a moment that I'm all cash. And I write eighteen bullet points about valuations and Fed policy and um, the high unemployment. I'm like. Exactly. So this one guy from LPL, he sent just the most criticizing email possible. So I looked this up as his advisor, and he'd been in the business for about two years at that point in time. So he has no experience, and he's being critical because his clients are screwed because he has no experience, and he wants to be right, and he wants to have a very strong opinion. I don't have to be right. I look at the history of the stock market. We hit highs seven out of ten years. Um, it's more like capitalism than it is like stock market. There's buyers and sellers in the market. I'm going to teach you how to win. It's capitalism if you look at it in a big, broad sweep. Um, so I send him an email every year. I send his 18 bullet points that he sent to me every year on why he knew the market was going lower. And for the last six years, he looks like a jack monkey. You thought I was going to say a word, didn't you? Yeah. Is that Suze Orman? She's stopping by the studios again. Hi, Suze. Anyone who spells their name S-U-Z-E and then calls themselves Suze instead of Suzy, I hate. I've got a lot of hate in my body. I'm trying to get it out. California's made me much softer, don't you think? Yeah. <clears throat> okay. So, in your opinion, credit still continuing to loosen up or is it tightening? Um, 
it's it's really where it should be, in my opinion. Okay. Uh, it's gotten a little bit easier. And you, they're they're saying, okay, well, if you're doing cash out, you may need a 680 score instead of a 700 score now. Uh, but then you're seeing some aggressive lenders that say, well, we're going to go over 80 uh, percent, you know, with less than 20 percent equity. Uh, but you need a better credit score. So we're seeing kind of a mix of what directions lenders are going, and but we're still in that phase of, of kind of shuffling around. So we're we're not really where we where a lot of people <coughs> want to be, but it's I think it's a lot healthier because the people who are buying, people who are refinancing, are quite qualified, and it, it gives a much higher standard of ownership right now. I understand. Um but I wouldn't. I'm not going to, uh, you know, jump out and say it is getting easier, even though that you're going to see articles that say it is. I'm trying to think of the scenario. Someone was telling me they're. Oh, I know who it was. Um, so I have a friend who's a f- uh, former weather lady. Um, I work in TV news, um, and she moved to San Diego with her husband. Her husband is a Air Force flyboy, and she's starting a job in three months, and they want to buy a house. And I'm like, hmm. The one thing that looks negative here is is it's one income instead of two. But can she get through that scenario? How easy is it to get through that scenario to convince lender that, no, it's two incomes, or it's going to be two incomes really soon because she's basically been not laid off but kind of taken the last three to six months off while she was formulating what she wanted to do with her life. This is where you kind of get into a gray area because the, the what we have is two sets of guidelines. You have Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, FHA their set of guidelines, and then you have the lender guidelines, the, the actual lender that's selling that product. And the, so you have what they call overlays. So you have a second set of guidelines. So in this situation, there's a likelihood that she could get a salaried position with a guaranteed salary, um, even if it's hourly, but it's, it has to be guaranteed and, and verified. And she could probably go three to six months, which I've seen done in the last you know three or four years. So those types of guidelines uh, really are about where you go to get your loan. If you're working at, uh, if you're looking at the lowest rate, you're going to get the highest, hardest guidelines. If you're looking at a slightly higher rate, you're going to get the better guidelines. It's Rob Black and your money. You can find me online at robblack.com. I've got seminars coming up. You can learn more at robblack.com. You can contact Tony, Tony at BayAreaLoanSource.com. The views and opinions expressed by Rob Black and his guests are not necessarily those of the Wall Street Business Network, this station, its management, owners, or advertisers, and should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making any investment or financial planning decision. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.